Fitz, I love this mug you sent me. I'm glad you like it. It, it was the biggest handle I had. It, it Look, you told me, so you gave me a mug in January when I was in Chicago and saw you and you said, hey, put this in your hand and feel it. And it was literally the first time anybody had ever said that I should think about how a mug fits in my hand. And I didn't like, I, I, I'd never considered it before. I'd always just bought the mug that had the picture on it that I wanted. And uh, I was absolutely heartbroken when I dropped a bowl on it a few months ago and it broke. <laughs> um, so I was stoked to get a, a fresh big handle bad boy here with a, with a lovely blue glaze. So a, a lot of potters hate handles. They, they hate really? making them because they're, they can be tricky. Um, and I've, I always, when I first started focused on form, I, I focused on like what looks pretty or has a nice negative space or whatever and never really thought about like how it felt in my hand and then i was i was studying under this potter a year and a half ago two years ago and she's like all right we're gonna do handles let's we're gonna do make make handles for an hour straight and just attach them to a bucket like just do anything to keep making handles and i think i made 43 handles in an hour like wow. i just motored through them and you could clearly look at the first five were just garbage but the last five were just like yeah it's starting to get there kind of kind of neat and then i started to think about like really what makes it feel like it's hugging your fingers the mug hugs your fingers Welcome to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. Uh, Brad, unfortunately, well, he's here. He's listening. Uh, but he had some some surgery this week and his head is packed full of gauze. So uh, rather than talk to us and make us hear the, the horrible non-dulcet tones of Brad's uh, gauze packed nose, uh, I'm here with uh, my pal Brian Fitzpatrick uh, of Talk, but formerly of Google and a bunch of other stuff that we'll get to. Uh, and we're going to talk about some old technology. Uh, Fitz, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Good to, good to see you. Good to catch up a little. Um, if you don't, uh, if you're a longtime listener to Still Untitled, you've heard me talk about an event that happens in Chicago in January called Ord Camp uh, that fits along with a team of really, really brilliant people has been running for what, like 12 years now? 12 years. We've done 12 of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, it is, it is uh, the, the, the event that he runs is a collection of brilliant, interesting, fascinating, fun people that come together and kind of share the things that they're interested in and passionate about. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's a really incredible cross-disciplinary event. And it's one of my favorite things that I get to do when, when I get to go. So, um, thank you for that. But, 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 You've also been doing technology stuff for uh, you're one of the fabled graybeards, Fitz. I didn't. I don't. I don't want to out you. Yeah. No. No worries. I've been doing this for 26 years now. Yeah. Do you 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 started with one of the early uh, code management systems, right? Uh, well, I started before that. I mean, I, I that was sort of the the thing that helped me. I think really get out there I was doing open source stuff. Working on. I, I did work on Subversion when it first started in 2000, and Subversion launched in 2003. I have not been using Subversion for longer than it's actually existed, which is kind of funny. 
Uh, but not for long, <laughs> for longer than I actually used it. Um, but yeah, and I started doing CGI programming with Perl back in 94. Uh, oh, wow. When it was like, you know, Mosaic and Netscape had just come out. And um, I don't know, I just loved it. I, I think at a late start, though, I didn't start until I was 24. Oh, what, so so did you, so you weren't, were you like a CS guy? No, I, I majored in Latin, minored in Greek and pottery. Wow. So um, my, my mom thought I was going to be homeless. I mean, you, look, you, it worked out okay for you, I guess. Um, Always have a that's hobby. Fun, that's funny. I did, I did, I did Latin and ancient Greek, and uh, they those contributed to me being able to write really well. Yeah, because yeah. you can't, you can't, like, if you can't, if you, you're not going to do well at Latin if you don't. Doing well at Latin makes you really, really, really understand English grammar in a way that is that is uh, fascinating. I always found. Um, but but yeah, so okay, so you worked on you worked on Subversion, which was I, I I mean I guess we could explain what Subversion is, but it's basically a predecessor to Git or one of the modern more modern code management yeah. systems at this point, right? I'd agree. Yeah, it's, it was a centralized version control system uh, built to replace CVS, was the which was the original like open source version control system that everyone used back in the '90s and uh, 2000s up until Subversion basically supplanted that, and then Git supplanted that. So yeah, uh, and then and then that took you to Google, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I started at Google. I don't know, a year and a year and a half after Subversion launched. Mm-hmm. And you you were part of. Um, part of a crowd that seemed like they didn't want to move to California, but wanted to work for Google and, and you ended up somehow staying in Chicago. Yes. Somehow. I don't know how that worked out. That was kind of fascinating. I basically said, yeah, I'm staying here and I'd love to work for Google. And we wound up with me starting Google's uh, engineering office in Chicago, along with my friend, Ben, who you know very well. Yeah. I love Ben. Ben's great. Yeah. Um, and, and Google, so when we get to Google, we're going to get to the interesting part. I think the really interesting part of the story, because Google afford, you know, in addition to like day job stuff that you did, you know, you, you, um, you, you started the takeout, what, what is now I think called the Google takeout program where, which lets you, you know, extract all of your data from the giant faceless multinational tech company uh, so yeah. that you can move it to other places or whatever. But, but I, I mean, that. That initiative, when I was at Maximum PC, when you all started doing that, and I saw that, I was like, oh, this is something I had never thought these enormous tech companies were going to allow. And it kind of set a really positive tone for data portability in a a way that like Google, Google was giving us all these free services. There was absolutely no, there was no need for Google to release the data that we'd given to Google. Right. Um, So it was a refreshing thing. And I'm curious like that process, how, how much of that was like, how much of a fight was it to get that to happen inside the company at the time? Was it, was were people on board or was it, was it a challenge? It was actually effortless. And so far as I went and talked to, I basically went to Eric Schmidt at the time and said, Hey, I really want to do this thing. And he's like, well, why are you asking me permission? Just, just go, you should be doing this. This is, of course you should be doing this because he had been, one of the things that there are two things that inspired me to start it. One was Eric kept giving talks internally and externally where he talked about the fact that Google doesn't lock in your data mm-hmm. like other companies uh, where it's impossible to get your data out or export it. We make it easy to go. And I, I sort of thought like, yeah, we kind of do, you know, the doors open, but in some cases you really got to bang your shoulder up against it. And I think it could be better. And then I had, a, I wound up having a conversation, the long story behind this, but due to an article about me in Valleywag that misquoted me, <laughs> uh, 
I met this Google PM um, named Jess, who was the one that initially threw the idea about the data liberation project. She called it data portability. And mm-hmm. we were just getting ready to roll it out. And then dataportability.org came out. And I looked at this and I'm like, this is never going to go anywhere. And this was like 2008, 2009. And yeah. so we decided to go data liberation, sort of like guerrilla army type uh, marketing. And I'm glad we did because dataportability.org is still there and it's so sort of hasn't done a whole lot, frankly. Well, but I mean, it's, if you've never used the takeout service, it's really neat. You go in, you log into your Google account and then you say, okay, I want to download all of this stuff. And it says, okay, we're going to zip this up and, and we'll let you know when the download's ready. And then you get, you you can get everything from like email stuff that's uploaded to photos, stuff that's uploaded to YouTube, um, your blog, anything. yeah, Yeah. All of it. And, um, and well, it the works. Really, the really cool thing about it is we initially launched with Zip because that was the easiest thing to get done and build the pipeline. But now you can push point your stuff straight at Dropbox. You can push your stuff right at Microsoft oh. OneDrive. And Google started the data transfer project in the last, I don't know, year and a half, two years ago, mm-hmm. uh, which is an open source project to allow anyone basically to build an endpoint for takeout, not just for takeout, but for this sort of protocol of transferring data from one place to the other other, so that it doesn't turn into a technology problem to integrate with other services. It turns into a basically a sort of a procedural problem where you vet the service and make sure that they're legit before you hook up to hook up to them. That's that's so. So um, I guess shortly after that, you left Google, right? Or maybe other stuff in between six, six years after that, after we started it. Yeah. Um, but, but along the way, you also, one of my favorite things at OrdCamp every year is you take a, a lunchtime Saturday tour of the Chicago Google Museum, which is a little nook on one of the floors in the Google office. I, don't, I can't remember which one, but it, it's got all this weird science and tech ephemera from the Chicago. It seems like it's mostly from the Chicago area, but also from like Google's history and a, and a bunch of other things. And there, there is some stuff there that I've never seen in actual, like real museums. For example, there's a, there's an old, I think you said second generation Google rack, maybe. Yeah. There's a there's second generation rack. I, the first, a first generation rack is in the computer science history museum, uh, in or computer history museum in Mountain View, right by Google. Okay, um, I tried to get one of those, but they don't ship; they fall <laughs> apart because they're literally held together with zip ties. So, so those are the ones that when we would hear stories about Google engineers building like b- building machines and stacking them on, I think what was it, pieces of uh, of like particle board or something. It was a cork st- board. They call them the cork board racks, the first generation, because wow. they would just basically had these sort of bits of sheet metal and they would put a, la- a thin layer of cork board on the sh- just basically to keep the motherboard from shorting out against the metal rack. <laughs> Yeah, and they're not they're not screwed in. They're just rested and zip tied in the in the corner holes, right? They weren't they weren't even zip tied. They were just rested on there. The back wall of the rack was a, a, a zip tied together wall of fans, basically. Wow. And the whole thing was just like it's just super super sketch. If you're ever in the in the museum in Mountain View, uh, go check it out. And you're like it, it's sort of canted a little bit to the side because it's like going to fall over at any moment. 
it, it reminds me of the I can't remember what the what the it's the people in one of the Douglas Adams books that that the the supercomputer is is pushing spaceflight on uh, and they build the jankiest spaceship in the world in the in the universe and you look at it and everybody's like I can't believe this thing flew and you kind of look <laughs> at those old racks and you're like I really this is what made search good I can't I don't I don't know if I buy this um, well I mean there's a couple things that were groundbreaking with that first of all they didn't have pretty bezels they didn't have blinking lights they didn't come everyone didn't have a CD drive everyone didn't have all these you know all this, all this stuff that you expected in a server. And also they weren't designed to be sturdy and last. The, the premise was hardware will fail no matter what, especially as you get into larger numbers. So let's just plan on it failing and go as cheap as we can. Um, the other thing was they were optimizing for square footage and the use of electricity. Uh, because at the time, in, in late 90s, early 2000s, data centers were charging you per square foot. Uh, not per watt used. And so by maximizing this, and then by the time Google got to second gen rack, which is the one that I have in the museum here, uh, they would base, they were still renting data center space at the time instead of uh, building their own data centers. But the really cool thing is they would roll all these racks into a data center and they would use so much electricity and cooling that half the data center would be left empty. Wow. Because they wow. just couldn't put anything else in there. So, so like you, you guys were trying to build. They were trying to build Comptronium basically there, rather than. <laughs> um, uh, Brad asks, uh, "What kind of systems are we talking about in those zip tied racks? Architecture, OS, stuff like that." Well, it's it was all basically a, a, a version of Linux. Um, the I don't know about the Gen One rack, but the Gen Two rack that I have was Pentium, dual Pentium threes, um, and they were just like. They're, they had two different kinds of racks. Okay, so well, let me back up a second. So I decided I wanted to get a rack for the office. The whole reason this museum thing exists is because I was like, we're out in Chicago. We should have cool nerd stuff like they have out in Mountain View. Because in Mountain View Building 42, they had a first-gen rack in the lobby. You know, and they've got all this sort of cool stuff out there. And I'm like, there's no reason we shouldn't have this here. So you may remember early days, Google had this thing called the Geo Display, which was this rotating earth with little pillars of light showing where searches were happening. So I built one of those machines uh, and had that in the office, which was cool. And then I'm like, we need to get a rack. And so I tried to get the Gen 1 rack and failed because they just said, we can't ship them. They'll fall apart. Then I managed to sort of weasel my way into getting a Gen 2 rack shipped. Um, and so there's two of them. One is the what they call a serving rack, which was it would have 40 machines, 20 per side. Uh, and it would basically CPU, you know, just for serving up search queries, handling whatever types of data ads, et cetera. Uh, then they had a, a, a rack that they affectionately called a disk full rack because it was full of disks that was for storage. And so the one that I wound up getting was a disk full rack and that's 40 machines. Uh, each machine's a Pentium three and uh, dual Pentium three and each machine had eight hard disks in it. Now there were originally 20 megabyte hard disks and they all like plugged into these little offboard daughter cards. Uh, at some point, Hold on, 20 just, megabyte or 20 gigabyte disks. 20, I'm sorry. It, it would have had to be 20 gigabyte, right? No, this was, this was early 2000s. So my... Like this, was, this was 2003 era. So I don't know that that would have been 20. But would it, yeah, it would have been 20 gigabyte. Yeah, 20 megabyte yeah, would have been like mid-90s. Yeah, 20 megabyte would have... Um, see, this is... Early, the, early 90s, this maybe. This is the problem with starting like with computers in the 80s is that like I get my megabytes and gigabytes confused all the oh, time. It's easy to be off by um, an order of magnitude all, uh, on the reg, yeah. Yeah, so, so 20 gigabyte disks. And... 
Google was desperate for storage space because they were running on a space to store logs. So at some point they went through and converted all these to 400 gigabyte drives. And as you well know, the problem with making your, your, your basement 20 times larger, but still having the same wee little basement door gave you all sorts of IO problems. <laughs> and, uh, and th this, these racks were legendary for just being super difficult to get data in, into and off of. Uh, but that that's the rack that we have at, at Google Chicago. And the cool thing about it is I, I was so ignorant going into this. I had no idea how much this thing weighed. Yeah, each, each, there's 40 machines and each one has eight hard drives. So that's uh, 320 hard drives. Yes. And you've got the rack and you've got all the other metal and stuff. The weight of this rack is just under 1500 pounds. And so the, Holy the, cow. the delivery guy showed up. And he was super confused. He's like, where's the data center? And I'm like, oh, there's no data center. This is just an office. He's like, I can't deliver this. I'm like, why not? He's like, well, your ramp has a one inch lip at the bottom and we can't get over that. And I'm like, well, can't you just tilt it back? And he just looked at me like I had three heads. And we wound up somehow not killing ourselves with like seven or eight people getting this rack up and rolling it down the hallway to where it lived. Um, and it was one of those things where it would it was running a standing wave through the floor of the office because it was so heavy. Oh my and god! When the building management people found out what I brought into the building, they were furious because the building wasn't rated for this. Uh, and so we wound up having to literally like put it right next to a load bearing column. Couldn't move it. Had all these rules and restrictions around it. It's a good thing you are in earthquake territory, I guess. Right. Right. Um, is there anywhere online uh, people can see pics of, of this stuff? Like, are these are these available online places or are they still kind of semi-secret? I don't think they're semi-secret. I think if you start, it, this was this was also known as a breadboard rack because the it looked like giant, like, you know, breadboards, these big metal sheets that were in there. Um, and so I bet you if you search around for Google breadboard rack, you could find something. Okay. Rather, they're they're just they're just super ghetto looking, you know. Especially now that it's a seventeen year old piece of hardware, uh, and you know it's it's another funny story about this. I I actually created a, a sticker that I wound up giving out like thirty thousand of at Google that said my other uh, computer is data center. <laughs> so and, so, <coughs> oh, go ahead. No, I say this, this sticker was, you know, lots of people were using my other data. My other computer is a book, you know, um, the security team made my other computer is your computer and the hardware ops <laughs> people, uh, made my other computer is made of razor blades and hate because these, <laughs> these machines had so many sharp edges that they were required to wear gloves after a while to handle them because people were just getting their fingers sliced to ribbons. I, I was going to say, I looked at this and it reminded me of the worst of the 90s PC cases in that it is like the die stamped metal with the super yeah. sharp edges. Um, what um, like, like this is this is before the point. I mean, now, obviously, Google buys enough hardware that they just say, hey, we want this is the giant motherboard manufacturer. Here's the motherboard we want with this stuff on it and, and this configuration, this many slots and this many drive ports and all of that stuff. But back then, I assume this was mostly off the shelf hardware or, oh, yeah. or not really. Yeah, completely off the shelf, uh, you know, bulk stock crap and there's a, there's a there's a there was a switch uh built into the middle of the rack too so everything basically just plugged into there you would roll in and basically plug in uh three or four things into the wall and then plug in one uh ethernet cable and off you went so like you wow. can turn up a data center really quickly and burn it in really quickly there's there's two other things 
that merit note about these racks. And one was very controversial is that all the drives were uh, just basically, instead of screwing them all in, because drives, drives fail all the time, especially when you have yeah. hundreds of thousands of them, they were all Velcroed down. And I, Go ahead. I was just saying mechanical hard drives of that time didn't have accelerometers and stuff if they were jostled. So like moving the rack when it was, I guess moving a 1500 pound rack was probably challenging. So, right. I mean, well, you wouldn't, you obviously, you know, wouldn't bump it around a lot, but, uh, and that the heads would be parked when it was moving and you wouldn't move it when it was on. But, uh, there were two things that were interesting. One is that, you know, software engineers were like, Oh, this is fine. You know, these racks, these, these drives can handle this sort of, you know, vibration, et cetera, without being mounted, you know, screwed down. Well, it turned out they would do fine on reads, but on writes, they would fail like 50% of the time <laughs> because of the vibrations. And it just got worse as they added more drives. So, you know, eventually the hardware engineers did the, I told you so thing. Uh, the other thing, <laughs> the other thing fun to note about this is that these, these racks were just so poorly built and so slammed out so quickly that it was sometimes very difficult to get the lower servers pushed in because the, the, the machine would, the, the sides would bow in or out. And so the, the, the documented protocol for getting the last bottom machine back in all the way was to lay on your back in front of it and kick it until it went in. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> early days of, of tech, pretty, pretty janky, it turns out. Um, wh what, uh, wh what was the like, how many of these were we t are we talking about? Like, were these things that they were just building as fast as they could and there were tens of thousands of them eventually? Or was this something that there were a few hundred of and it would it, and, and that was all that was needed to run the Google of the time? I'd say it's somewhere between those two, or I don't okay. know the exact number, but it was definitely in the five digits range at okay. least. I mean, yeah, four to five digits. And then they eventually they transitioned to building custom enclosures and custom racks so that they could increase the density even more. And now we're looking at like four U's with 32 CPUs and a bazillion drives and all that stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, everything now is super custom, including the data centers themselves. Like they're, they're really amazing. I've been, to, I've been to some cool places. I've been to, I've been inside the, the Fermi lab Tevatron. I've been to Argonne mm. National Labs, Electron Accelerator, and I've been in a Google data center. And the, the last generation that was there when I left in 2014 blew my mind. Absolutely blew it's, my mind. It, the, the science of how can we pack more compute into the smallest amount of space and cooling footprint has been, has been really it's it's gone a lot of gone a lot of places in the last 20 years right sure has yeah it's all about electricity at that point that's your that's generally your limiting factor well yeah it's, there's a reason we build them in places where there's a lot of hydroelectric power or a lot of sun and and a lot of uh cool water right right yeah there's, a, there's um, one in finland i think you know yeah the, the, i know that there's a bunch on like the columbia river in or in oregon and washington places like you know yeah it's it's like what are the other things that matter for data centers? I guess speed of light. So distance to the places that you need the resources or does that even matter really? Intersection of electricity and good fiber is, a, is basically it. But yeah, I mean, that's the reason I used to, when, when I would do tours of the office and especially with school students, I would ask them like, why do you think Google has data centers all the way around the world? And they would come up with a lot of different answers, but no one ever got the right answer, which is that the light isn't fast enough. Yeah. So if, yeah. if everything's in North America, people are halfway around the globe, you're adding, you know, a seventh of a second to everything, which is a lot. Wait, well, when the search query takes a third of a, a sixth of a second, then a seventh of a second lag is, uh, is a lot. Everything starts right? to add up. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, let's uh, let's switch tracks a little bit and talk. One of the other things that's fascinating about uh, the Google Museum is you have a very large electromagnet there. I do. I do. It's very large, yellow, eight hundred and fifty pound superconducting electromagnet. Everyone has a, have one. Yeah. <laughs> so so okay. So it's an electromagnet. It's from the Tevatron, right? Or that's right, the Fermilab Tevatron. Yeah. Which was, which is, it was a high speed experiment to find particles, right? I mean, it was a high speed, um, high, high energy, high energy. Thank you. Yeah. High energy physics. Yeah. That was worked on for years, if not decades. Um, um, it, yep. Yeah. I was just to say, but yeah, particle accelerator in, in the Chicago land area at, 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 uh, at Fermilab. Um, and th- this thing, the stand, I don't know if you guys built the stand or if they built the stand, but the table for it is, is pretty impressive. I bought like, the stand. Oh, you bought the stand. Okay. Yeah. It's rated for 34,000 pounds. Cause so I bought one. Uh, well, let me, let's back up. We should talk about how yeah. we got it. Right. The, so on September 30th, 2011, they shut down the Tevatron because they have the Large Hadron Collider now. You know, an interesting note, Fermi did a lot of the magnet research and a lot of the magnet R&D for uh, the LHC because they were the ones with the expertise. Um, so anyway, it was announced that it was shut down and I immediately emailed a friend of mine that worked over there and I'm like, dude, it's the Fermi Lab Tevatron shut down. Can you get me a magnet from it? And he wrote <laughs> me back and I don't know, can we swear on this podcast? Yeah, fuck yeah. He's like, you have no fucking idea what you're asking for. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, they're they're huge. I'm like, well, get me a small one. And so I have a small one that's 850 pounds and four feet long. Uh, the large ones are multiple tons and like 20 to 40 feet long, something very long. Um, but there's two kinds of magnets in the Tevatron. Um, one is a steering magnet, which mm-hmm. is basically, it's a dipole, has two poles, and basically turns the beam a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right as it goes around this mile ring, mile long ring, uh, or mile diameter. I think, I think it might be mile I think it's mile circumference, actually. It mile circumference? It's big, whatever it is. I mean, it's the, so big the, they have buff and, buffalo or bison living in the middle of it, right? <laughs> the comments will let us know. Yeah. Um, and then the small ones are quadruples. They're focusing magnets. There's four poles. They basically squeeze the beam down um, every so often as it goes around. There's about 700, I think 774 of the dipoles in the ring. And then there's 250 of the quadrupoles. And so in any case, my friend, he humored me and we went back and forth. And basically just over a year later, I got the magnet. Like it had to go through so much red tape and everything. And I bought it off of eBay. That's how I got it. They, they called me up and they said, we finally figured this out. How do you want to buy it? I said, what is easiest for you? And they said, really, eBay's the easiest. And I said, well, can you make it a buy it now? Because I don't want someone else to snatch this up. Because they had to go all this thing where they had to put it up for scrap. I mean, no one bought it for scrap. Like, no one would buy it. And so I clicked the buy it now button off of eBay and had it shipped to the office. I bought a table for it that was rated for a t- one ton. And I'm like, I figure uh-huh. 2X the rating, that'll be totally fine. And this table wobbled back and forth so much. It scared the heck out of our facilities people. And like, you need to buy a bitter, bigger, better table. So the table we have now is like 350 pounds and you could park, you know, a, a truck on it. It's bananas. <laughs> well, um, I, I have to ask how much, uh, an 800 pound Tevatron magnet costs on buy it now on eBay. Well, so when they, when I said, can they do buy it now? They, they sort of did this sort of, like, you know, sucking in their teeth. You know, we're going to, we're going to have to raise the price 
a good bit if you put it on buy it now. And I said, well, okay, what, what is the price going to be with buy it now? And they said, it's going to be $150. <laughs> you're paying, you're paying less than a, a buck, a, a, a less than a buck a pound. That's uh, pretty good. You're basically, it's basically a, a scrap price, but, but only two of these magnets have ever left Fermi. Uh, one's at the, at the Smithsonian, I believe it's in storage. Um, and this one is on display at the museum in Google Chicago. So Brad wants to know, is it safe to assume you never tried to uh, put power on the magnet? It is very safe to assume that because for two reasons. One, uh, we don't have that kind of power. Um, two, uh, we don't have um, liquid helium to, to cool it. So oh, man, it's always uh, a problem. It turns out the liquid helium. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got these cool sort of bendy connectors on the side where they use to connect uh, everything together. Um and, and you can look down the beam line. It's it's really an amazing piece of high energy physics history. And I'm super happy to have that. But yeah, there, w- there was some concern about people, uh, you know, is it going to affect laptops or phones walking by and that kind of thing? And you're like, no, it's basically a giant hunk of iron uh, yeah. at this point. Although the, the magnet itself is inside the iron yoke is, is niobium titanium. You don't want to degauss every credit card in the building when you fire that thing up. Uh, I think that you said the one that you have wasn't actually ever, it was a spare. Is that right? Yeah, it was a spare. They, the, the, as my contact at Fermilab put, you're never going to remove any magnet from the Tevatron itself because they are imbued with administratium, which is to say there's so much red tape involved in getting something out of there because basically they're hot having been, you know, shot through with protons, high-speed protons for so many years, they, there's a low level of radiation in them. Okay. So, so this is um, a spare. And they cleaned it all up and they repainted it and they re-stenciled it and it's all, it's all pretty when we got it. But I had to buy an engine hoist to move it off of the, <laughs> the pallet onto the thing because how do you move something that heavy, you know? So, I mean, somewhere at Google Chicago, there's an engine hoist just rolling around in a back storage room? That is correct. Very good. Uh, did you have all this stuff in the old Google office before they moved to the new place? Yeah, the old the old space yeah was the one that had the problem with the weight of the rack. The new space building ah. was is in an old cold storage building. You could park cars in there; it's no problem. Okay, that makes that makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the other things that's really fascinating about the the space in Google, and we could there's a bunch more stuff we could get into, but the your 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 collection of esoteric storage devices there is has some stuff that I'd never seen before, which is which is. Um, I mean, uh, look, I've been doing this for a little bit. Um, and, and you have everything from like old analog formats going all the way back to early record record cylinders and, and things like phonograph cylinders and things like that, uh, all the way up to mi- micro micro cassettes and w- weird disc formats. I think there's a German phonograph tape thing that's in there somewhere. Yeah, the Teffy phone. Yeah. Yeah. That one, that one is the weirdest because it's a, it is a, it seems like it's a vinyl tape, right? Like a kind of thick vinyl tape yeah. in a cartridge. Read by a needle. Yeah. Yeah. It's super, it's the weirdest thing ever. And it's just, but it's a beautiful red uh, vinyl, whatever type of plastic yeah. type of thing. I don't know what it is, but yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I, that one, I assume you have to rewind. It's a record record. You have to rewind, but I don't know for sure. No, I don't think so. I think it's like an eight track. I think it's got like a, an, you know, a loop. I don't, I, so I don't know how eight tracks, so eight tracks are another one of those ones I never bothered to spend the 20 minutes on Wikipedia to figure out how it works. Um, what, what's the, like, what are the more interesting, like, I mean, obviously there's like zip disks and sidequest disks and all those big external yeah. hard drive things in there, but what, what are some of the, do you have some highlights, some favorites from that section fits? Yeah. Um, so 
the, the Tefi phone is by far one of my favorites. Um, I, I just, I love that idea. I've, I love the film collection because I've got everything from eight millimeter to 35 to 70 and then to IMAX that I think, I think I let you pick up that IMAX trailer that I've got. It's like a 30 second IMAX trailer that weighs 15 pounds. It's, it's a disc. It's a disc of celluloid that is. It's it, mylar. It's, Actually. Oh, sorry, Mylar, because yeah. Lloyd would have caught on fire by now, probably. Um, it's really, really heavy. Uh, and and like it's really fun when you when when you have people and you're everybody's holding up the different sizes of the film. It's it, it's really nice to it gives you a really f- firm representation of, hey, here's the difference in you know, everything from, like you said, home eight millimeter all the way through the IMAX and the CinemaScope and all the different projection formats. Yeah. And to give you a, a feeling for like what you're talking about, to take your pinky fingernail and look at it. That's about the size of an eight millimeter uh, frame. So you can hold that up to the light and you can maybe make it out, make out if it's a person or a house or something. The IMAX frame is hold your phone up, hold your extra large phone up, which of which I have one. That's probably two frames side by side of IMAX right there. So you can not only tell what's in it, but who's in it. Like there's one of the frames I got is a Robin Williams on a horse, Williams on a horse. And you can clearly see it's Robin Williams standing on a horse because it's just that big. And there's just that much resolution there. Yeah. The IMAX, the IMAX is almost like, um, it's like the size of your palm almost depending on how big your hands are. Yeah. Um, it's ridiculous. The, yeah, and, oh, uh, go ahead. I was going to say that the other going way back, the, the, um, the giant uh, digital disc pack that I've got, it's 175 megabytes. Um, I think it's 12 or so 14 inch platters and it weighs in the order of 40 pounds. And this was the other thing they would go and put in those giant dishwasher size uh, disc drives in a, in a data center and you'd spin the top off and you close the lid of the dishwasher and the heads come in from the side and, and read the data off of it. It, it looked, those things looked like a tub washer really. Yeah. Yeah. They're just enormous. Um, we, we did a video at tested years ago with one of the, I guess it's, I guess it's one of the things that followed that, but that IBM, I want to say it's like a two megabyte hard drive or something from the sixties that, that, uh, Adam got someplace. Uh, when we hung that from the ceiling in the, in the, in his shop, it, uh, took three people and a chain hoist <laughs> to get it up there. And I, 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 we'd, I, I feel like it was in the early days of us working with Adam at Tested, and I was standing there with with this 80 or 100 pound disk drive on my shoulder, on my on my hands up above my head. And I was thinking, man, I hope his ceiling joists are as strong as he as he said they are, because otherwise I'm going to get flattened here. That was um, the first thing I thought when he when he pointed it out to me when I was over there a couple <laughs> years ago. I was like, oh, man. Yeah. I mean, that's like that was big data, right? Uh, this stuff was heavy. The. But like the, the the whole point around this was collecting things that for storing data over the years, because so many people collected old machines, but like that gets really bad really quickly, like in as in like build a warehouse because it's yeah. just so big. So uh, as I sort of like went forward and backward, different folks would send me different things, different folks would recommend stuff. I've got a deck of punch cards, uh, which is really cool. Like I, I just adore punch cards because I grew up with them because my dad did computer stuff and they were everywhere in our house. We, they were for grocery lists. You know, you could cut them into strips and make little chains of like we, decoration, yeah. all sorts of stuff. My, uh, my grandparents' house had that as well. My grandmother worked on early punch card stuff in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So. It was so interesting. It was so, so tangible, you know? Uh, yeah. A million different kinds of tapes. Tapes, I think, is the most obnoxious 
category because, and, and I will back up and say, when I started doing this, I started collecting this because I'm like, oh, this is a nice finite thing to collect. I was wrong. Yeah. It is well, absolutely it's, infinite because there's what, so story much formats. Random, yes. <laughs> so there's so many different, really weird, um, not broadly used formats out there. Like the Teffy phone, you know, they probably made a thousand or a couple thousand of those, I guess, you know. Well, and, and especially in the early days of computing, there were so many people who had shifted from making so many companies that shifted from making analog tape stuff to digital tape stuff. There were probably I remember at one point in the 90s, I was specking out a backup system for our server cluster at the place I was working. And like there were probably 20 different vendors making completely incompatible tape backup systems. Oh, yeah. Like that could hold anywhere from what, maybe one gig to 10 gigs per tape or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and that stuff, that stuff could get out of control. The, uh, the disc, the, the hero, the disc, different disc formats was, is a fun part of your thing. You know, I did notice you didn't have one of those little, little like pocket zip discs. I don't know if you, if you remember those, but they were like maybe 40 or 80 megs. They were mostly for MP3 players and they were like, two inches across, maybe an inch and a half across. I think they only ever made one device for that played them. A removable, a removable zip. It was a removable zip huh. for portable use. I'll, I'll, I might have one in the garage that I can bring out next time I see you. So yeah, I've never actually been aware of this. So I've got a, I've got a spreadsheet that I, I should share this with you. That's got a list of all the known formats or Ooh. particular types that I have so that folks can go through and be like, Oh yeah, I have that or add to it or remove to it from it. You know, that's how uh, Rob Pike actually I was having dinner with him years ago. And we were talking about this and he was like, Oh, do you have a 12 inch worm disc in there? I'm like, wait a what? Cause I've got like a, I've got an optical, I've got a three and a half, three and a quarter, or three and a half and a five and a quarter. I didn't know they made a 12, but I found one and they're just, it's like a laser disc in a cartridge. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's huge. Bonker. I guess it still fits in a rack, right? Um, yeah. The, the, the audio cassettes, the, the, the scale at which Sony made audio cassettes from very, very tiny, like spy, spy tape size all the way up to what's the, what's the big one? Like five inches across or something. Oh, it's at least five. Yeah. It's, it's, Five, six, something like that. It's just enormous. Yeah, it's, it's like but it looks like a normal. Tape. Yeah, it looks like a micro cassette, but it's just huge. So, yeah, yeah and the, the the fun ones it, again. It, it comes down to like weight and size. So I've got the I've got the tiny little micro cassettes, which are smaller than the ones people are familiar with. Sony made this itty bitty one that's like an inch across, and then you know we've got the reel to reel stuff. Got a quarter inch. I don't actually have half inch. I don't know. I've got the nine track tape, which is all the old spinny tape you'd see in the old data center pictures, early like Tron, early original Tron, you know, type uh -huh. stuff like that. And then I've got one inch mastering tape, and then my favorite two inch mastering tape. It's basically for twenty four track analog recording. Uh, it's this it's the kind of stuff that the Beatles like you know recorded on in the in the that's very towards the end the abbey road days but um this it's just so heavy it's just it's this you know 10 inch reel that weighs like 15 pounds or something oh yeah i mean yeah that that it's, it's when you think about the density of data storage what's happened to the density of data storage over the last 20 years and now and the cost at the same time like i i the other day i had to buy a 128 gig s micro sd card it's smaller than my pinky nail it holds 128 yeah. gigabytes and i think i paid 20 bucks for it 25 yeah. bucks for it maybe yeah. like 
yeah, it's, it's amazing. Well, that's, um, that, that's the thing that I point out to folks is I've got this display at Google with all this stuff in it and a whole lot more. We've only really t- scratched the surface of it, but you could basically put all of this onto a single drive that you could go out and buy commercially today. And, and I think there's a, like the, I, the space is limited that you have for the museum there, but there's a fascinating, like, you know, you know how they present paleontological displays at, at natural history museums now. And they start like, they show the bones through time. So you understand that the Tyrannosaurus and the, and the Brontosaurus didn't live at the same time period because, you know, they were separated by, you know, 30 million years or whatever. Right. Th- there's an argument that like, there'd be a neat way to put all that stuff on a timeline. So you can actually see it and see what happened to the data density and the cost and the, and the weight and all that over over the you know the 40 years that that, that stuff has been has been made um I, I think I'd, I'd love to do something like that that's a great idea I think uh I think that's a pretty good place to wrap it up Fitz if you if you uh unless you have uh well let's see what did we do oh I got some questions coming in from Brad hot text questions from Brad um I'll I'll uh he's typing well, while he's typing, I'll throw a couple of other interesting things on there. I've got, um, we've got in the museum. One is the, so we've got laser discs, which people mm-hmm. have probably seen somewhere. 12, it's like a 12 inch CD, right? We also have capacitance, capacitance electronic disc, which is a predecessor to the laser disc that used a very fine needle, like a record for tracking. And, but the problem is, is that they couldn't get any dust in there because it was the, the needle track was so fine. So RCA put them in a, in a case a sleeve. So you would stick this long sleeve into the front of this reader and then pull it out and it would, it would sort of grab the disc. And would the sleeve like did have brushes to brush dust off as it was going it had, in? It did. It had a gentle little like, you know, linear like brush at the end of it to sort of keep the wow. dust out. Uh, but they still got dust in them and went, got destroyed. So this is a little bit of a swerve back to the start of the conversation, but you said you started, you considered it a late start that you only got into, into coding at age 24. Uh, this is yeah. from Brad, by the way. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to someone who's developing an interest in the subject past the age of 40? Go for it. Like, I don't think anything is, is too late. I mean, I got a, I got a late start relative to most people that write software, you know I mean? Most of the people I hire today are, you know, just out of college or whatever not, and they've been doing it since high school. Uh, people are starting to write code. It's it's more accessible for people to not only write code but get the resources to learn about it. Like in '94, when I was first starting all this, it was like save up money to buy an O'Reilly book. Yeah. Now it's just go t- use Google and Stack Overflow, and you're halfway there, right? Uh, for well, writing code. Yeah, and, and like before before Linux. If you wanted a code, like you had to save money to buy your environment to write code and right. compile in, right? You to buy a compiler, yeah. So yeah. I would say that I don't think anyone's too old to learn it. Like just if, if there's something you're interested in or curious about, start digging in and start find, find something you want to build. Just like or, or find something, some way of learning that works best for you. I'm not a classroom learner. I'm a, I'm a sort of hacker type of person. Uh, people would say I'm self-taught, but I say that I went out and found a bunch of teachers. Um, when it came to this stuff. So if that's what works for you, go for it. If, if you're a classroom learner, take a class, uh, if, buy a book, whatever works for you. But I don't think there's any too late anywhere around learning how to program. Do you, um, do you like, is, is, does it matter what language, like what you start? Like, I, I know, like I learned to code, I took CS 100 when I was in college and was like, oh, this probably isn't for me. And then 20 years later, I got an Arduino kit and, that information, that knowledge translated straight ahead into, into how to write code for Arduinos. 
But also at the same time, there's something really satisfying to me about making a change on my computer that could affect something physical in the world, like turn a yeah. motor, light up a light, make a buzz sound, whatever it was. And that that made it a lot easier for me to get going. But I know like a lot of people teach Swift. A lot of people teach Python, learn Python now. You know, what's where, where would you recommend starting or do you think it matters? I think a lot of it depends on what your interests are. To your point, like you, you found the interaction between software and the physical world interesting and that that sparked your interest, which is great. Like then Arduino is definitely the way to go with that. Uh, I, you know, when I was a kid, I had an Apple IIc and my brother and I, you know, I learned basics some 6502 assembler um, and then I got a Mac and I learned some Pascal and a tiny little bit of C but it never really grabbed me. I just, there was something about the client side stuff that I wasn't interested in. When my little brother, my little snot nosed brother back, uh, who was in, he, he was in college at the time studying engineering. Um, he introduced me to Unix and Perl and that was my gateway drug. That was the wow. thing that caught my, because I was writing something that I could affect on a web page that was just go out there and other people could see. I thought that was, that graphs got me excited. So what is the thing that gets you excited? I will say, I think you could make a mistake. If you started like, you know, doing x86 assembler, you're probably going to quit before you get anywhere. So, you know, <laughs> I, I think Python's a great thing. I think Arduino's great. I think things that are easier, I would avoid compiled languages, frankly. I would okay. I wouldn't start with C or Java. Um Start with something that can get you a return on investment pretty quickly. The reason I think Perl worked really great for me is because Larry Wall was a classicist. I was also a classicist, so I could learn Perl much like I had learned Latin, Greek, or Italian. And it was like little bits at a time, have speak like baby Perl and then get adolescent Perl and then et cetera. So, you know, f- find what you find what works for you. Well, and now now everybody has like it's funny. Somebody somebody asked me once what they should do. Like, what do they need to buy anything? I was like, you know, maybe a second monitor, Um, because it turns out almost all of the programmers I know now almost always have like the the complete reference guide up on the left side on on their other monitor, you know, because, you know, when you're dealing with these more complex languages now, there's a lot to keep in your head. And and you kind of you need to think about how the algorithms work, not necessarily the syntax or whatever of what, what you're working on in all cases. So there's nothing wrong with having that second monitor open with with your with your code examples and your your reference guides and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a it is a mistake to think that people who have been coding for many, many years uh, just remember everything and just sit down and like, you know, start typing something out. Like I got right out of their head. Absolutely not. Like I still forget, like what is a particular function to do something? What are the order of arguments? What's this magic number? Yada, yada, yada. Reference is, is the way it goes. Like I, I pulled up, go ahead. I've seen swordfish. I know how coding works. Okay. <laughs> oh God. What's, what's the worst movie representation of programming you've ever seen? Oh, I don't know. I really don't know. Like, it's not a, there's, I can't pick out one particular movie because there's, it's usually just the, like, the silly stuff when something goes wrong and they hit a bug and like the keyboard sparks. Like, that's probably the thing that's, you know, or the, the other thing is the, when I was, when I was at Apple, we, we were creating these widgets for web stuff that we could reuse. And one of the ones we, uh, one of my colleagues created was called the Hollywood login panel. And it was like little <laughs> dancing lights around you, like your username and login. But if you just typed in like admin as the username and hacker, it just bypassed all login and got you into the app. Like, <laughs> Oh God. Yeah. What, what, okay. So then what's the best? Do you what's think the, the one that, that was, was well done? It's not a movie, but I think Mr. Robot was really well done. Okay. 
You know, okay, that's I, I haven't fair. seen a lot. Of, I haven't seen a lot of the other stuff like Halt and Catch Fire. A bunch of friends like that. I haven't seen it yet. It's, it's up in my queue. Uh, but like I watched the first season of Mr. Robot and I was like, oh, they definitely were talking to some people who are in computer security here. Yeah, I, that, that one. I remember watching the first season of that and was like, oh, yeah, they have a their consults are really good on this. Um, yeah. I've got another question from Brad. Uh, this one is in the context of Git eventually coming along and supplanting subversion as someone who worked closely on a major project used throughout the open source community like SVN. What did it feel like to see what was basically the next generation version of your work come along and become more prominent? Um, I think my disappointment with it, I, I was certainly disappointed. Let's be honest. My disappointment stemmed from a, a different place than most people would think. One is that the the user interface for Git is just terrifyingly bad. Like I, I often I often say half jokingly, only half, maybe a third jokingly that you should never let kernel programmers write user land software uh, because <laughs> it's it's like a it's like a, a Gatling gun that just like randomly shoots at different people uh, and you're you're going to blow your foot off like once a week with it. And people have built sort of guardrails around it and wrappers and things like that. Um, but the other thing that really concerned me was the fact that with distributed version control, it's really easy to hide in a cave. It's especially for younger people who are learning. Uh, and, you know, Ben and I wrote about this in, in debugging teams. Um, if you, if you, do all your work and then don't share it with someone because you you can just like commit it all locally and then you can rebase and basically just burp out your perfect finished product and share it with the rest of your team. A, you're more likely to not share more often, often enough so that you can like get feedback, ongoing feedback. And two, you're likely to make mistakes that you don't have to make. But three, like people make mistakes all the time. Like just don't be afraid to show your work kind of a thing. And so those were the big concerns. But beyond that, like beyond a certain point, I think subversion actually didn't meet the needs. It continued to be centralized. Um, it was still built on a, a, a the repository. Now, I haven't looked at it since 2007 is the last time I worked on subversion. Uh, but at the time that the, the repository was still built in this data structure that I didn't think fitted, fit um, what they really needed to do proper merge tracking and some of the features that they needed to, to move forward. So... I'm, I'm glad that something else, something better is out there tool wise. Um, personally, like, and for a lot of my pet projects, I've used uh, Mercurial for a long time because it actually had a very good, um, interface and I liked it a great deal, but like GitHub has done, a, did a great job of basically building an, an ecosystem and a support structure around Git. Uh, and so I'm totally fine with it now. Um, I'm glad that I was just, I will, I will say I'm glad I was part of what enabled the world to get to Git, because um, I was I was the person who finally shipped CVS to SVN, which was the thing that converted a, a millions and millions and millions of lines of code from the old CVS system to Subversion. And but once once you got it out of CVS into Subversion, then you could take it anywhere. But CVS was such a janky piece of crap. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually gave talks about this piece of software. It was called Making Apples from Applesauce because CVS was such a mess that by analyzing it and running, I don't know, a dozen passes through it to get it into subversion. I could actually tell you information about your data that you couldn't find out from CVS because it didn't version operations. But I could basically wow. window box these things and say, oh, well, this operation must have happened in here. So we'll just bisect that and drop it in. So I'm glad we got people into a, that we wound up in the end with a tool that's much more usable. Uh, but I still do worry about people sort of hiding their work and being afraid to share as much. Well, there's a there's there's a one universal for we run foo on Git and um well on GitHub with yeah. the LDS stuff and all that. 
Um, one of the things that I've found is that everybody who uses Git on the reg has a post-it note or a notepad note document someplace with like, here are the, the commands to use when you fuck it up really bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and everybody's commands are a little bit different. <laughs> yep. It's yeah, it's, it's, there, there's a little, there's a, there's a, uh, you can do so much and so many different ways that it's, there's an inconsistency that's challenging for certain certain types of people. So I totally get that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think is, people say, you say a lot about command line software, but I really, this is something that I actually spent a lot of time on when I was working on subversion for a consistency and a smart, um, command line syntax, uh, that people could actually rec- remember, get help with, et cetera. There, there's, I'm, I'm no great designer when it comes to like web stuff, even though I've been doing web stuff for the past five years at talk. Uh, but when it came to command line stuff, I, I really put a lot of thought into the design of that command line. Um, Brad says, last question, uh, not to put you on the spot, but would you come back again sometime? I'd love to pick your brain for an awfully long time. Absolutely. I really enjoy chatting with you. This is super fun. It's just like having a chance to catch up with you and nerd out about stuff. <laughs> well, look, that's, that's the, you know, the, the, the joke I often see is that it's, it's a, it's a, the podcast is an excuse for middle-aged white men to have meaningful conversations with each other. So, um, <laughs> there you go. Um, Fitz, this is an opportunity for you to plug some stuff. Uh, talk obviously is awesome. Yeah, thanks. I, that's what I've been doing for the last five years. I left Google to start talk uh, with Nick Kakonis. And, you know, we're it's it's a weird world we're in right now with uh, COVID-19 and everything. But uh, we basically when we started working at home, um, our team sat down and said, well, restaurants are closing globally and we're, we're a system that helps restaurants book. What, what can we do to help these restaurants? You, well, you know? should and, explain what talk does normally before, I think, because I, yeah, I yeah, bet sure. a lot of people don't know. I was uh, so talk exploretalk.com. Uh, we are a booking system. Uh, some people will say like open table and I would say, yeah, except it doesn't suck. Um, <laughs> we we're basically, uh, a, you know, a modern version of a booking system for restaurants where we do everything a restaurant needs, which up until two months ago included things like regular reservations that cost zero dollars events, um, prepaid dinners, prefix dinners where you pay for the whole meal before deposits where you can pay part of the meal before add-ons where you can choose like a wine pairing or a truffle supplement or, you know, a cookbook. Cheese course. By the chef. Cheese course. Yeah. That kind of thing uh, beforehand. And so that's, that's what we're doing. And, and, and also a whole lot of really good software to help the restaurant manage everything better. Uh, a com- a com- complex customer relationship management software that would allow you to remember that, you know, oh, this person's left-handed, they drink sparkling water, their spouse's name is Steve, their anniversary is this, etc. So you basically keep keep information about your regulars and give them better treatment because the, the days of there being a single maitre d' that remembers everyone are long gone, effectively. Um, and so this is what we started doing in December of 2014. Um, I've got a, a fantastic product team that is doing amazing work. It's a beautiful piece of software too, if you've ever used it. Uh, but when basically every restaurant in the world shut down in the course of a week, uh, we, we said, we, we, what do we do? What can we do to help these restaurants with the software we have? And my team worked literally for like five days straight and burped out a thing called talk to go which is also does delivery and pickup now. So we do all that stuff plus delivery and pickup. And the the cool thing about that is most delivery or pickup services um, are the kind of thing where you get on the phone or you pull up your app and you order it and it shows up as soon as possible, right? Mm-hmm. And that might be 25 minutes, but if it were super slammed, it might be an hour and a half, which tends to get into like, oh, this sucks, I'm really hungry 
uh, territory. But our, our system's all about time slots. And so we basically allow a restaurant to say, yeah, I can do up to 20 meals every 15 minutes from five o'clock to nine o'clock. Uh, but between seven and eight, I can do 25 meals because we're really going to push hard. And so people can book in advance. So if, if it's like it's Friday morning and I'm like, oh, hey, I want to order from, you know, Loyalist tonight and get a burger. Like, yeah, what time do you want to pick it up? Oh, I'll pick it up at seven. Up oh, seven's already sold out. Uh, 6.30 is already sold out. I'll pick it up at 6.15. That's cool. And so the restaurant, you talk about flattening the curve, this peak that hits like at seven o'clock, you get to push that down and say, this is as, this is as much as our, um, our kitchen can handle and then push it out to the shoulders so that you can actually get, give more people meals. You can do more business with fewer people in the restaurant, which is important because they're having to space things out right now. So, uh, Anyway, we launched that mid-March and it's been just a roller coaster ever since uh, trying to get more restaurants onto this. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's it's interesting because it's so when I, I don't remember if it was you or Nick that pitched me on the original idea for talk at OrdCamp five, four or five years ago. Um, but but you, Nick is a restaurateur who owns the Alinea Group yeah. uh, in in Chicago and. Like this seemed, whereas the people I know that work with Open Table describe it as something that they have to do to remain in business. Um, like you guys took this from both a customer, you know, a diner perspective, but also from the restaurant perspective to to build something that's useful and good. And like you started doing, you started out with prefix prefix menus. So that and and I think it was Nick was telling me about this was the idea was that you could get if if you know that Wednesday night is always thin, you have the same number of people at the restaurant on Wednesday night working at the restaurant on Wednesday night as you do on Saturday or Friday. So so you're paying those people regardless. Your your cost is the same. The only thing you're not spending on is is the extra food that that's going out on the tables that night. But if you can get more people into the restaurants on those nights, even if it means reducing your price on the less demand less in demand nights, then then you can you could do like prefixes on Wednesday nights and make more money for the restaurant, have more people eating your food, and and it was a it was a good experience for everybody all the way around. It seems like this is this is a natural extension of that from you know, for, for the challenging times that we face right now. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's where Nick did actually have a talk about this at our camp. I think it would have been six years ago because some of my current employees, some of my current engineers actually had gone to that talk. Um, and then they're working with me today. Uh, but yeah, originally it, it came about because two things, one, um, no shows, even restaurants yeah. that have more demand than they have availability still have no shows. And it's not just, you know, uh, a table of four doesn't show up at all. It's a table of four shows up as three. And and mm-hmm. I will say this, there are these people out there who I would call monsters who book tables of four for two people just because they want more space. Oh, you're basically depriving a restaurant of revenue because you want to be more comfortable uh, in a restaurant. Well, it's not gonna be a problem going forward because you're going to get more space. <laughs> but the second thing is that variable pricing thing you pointed out is that so many people want to go on a Friday or a Saturday night, but not as many people want to go on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. So just like if you go to a ball game and you're sitting right behind home plate, you know, paying 300 bucks, you know, people don't sit there and look back up in the, in the, you know, seats way up in the second upper deck and say, God, you know, I can't believe this guy's only paid 70 bucks. Yeah. You know, no, no, nobody's sitting there crying over that. And so the thought was, well, if, if the same way is, if there's the same thing with demand in a restaurant, Let's raise prices a little bit on Friday and Saturday at seven and eight, but then lower prices on Tuesday and Wednesday. And what that came out with is the system where you you start to again that curve, that peak curve, you spread it out and you fill the restaurant more. And and 
another thing you said is the real thing that brought me to want to create talk with Nick wasn't that I was wasn't happy at Google. I was having a blast at Google. The fact is, is that the idea, the original concept of talk is something that's good for both the guests and the restaurants. So we agreed early on that if we can align our business model with keeping the guests and the restaurants happy, then we've got a recipe for success versus a lot of systems that we saw out there that were just like, oh, we're going to build this concierge service to help, you know, rich dudes that forgot to make a booking. They can pay an extra 50 bucks and get a table that they want on Friday at five or or seven o'clock, which doesn't help the restaurant at all. It doesn't help 99.9% of the world. And so that's what sort of brought us along to this. And it's been really exciting to see how it's evolved because like there's so many different ways a restaurant could be booked because if you've got if you've got high demand seven days a week, great. Then you can do all sorts of stuff. Most restaurants don't have that. Yeah. Most restaurants that are open have high demand on a Friday and a Saturday. Great. How can we push some of that off to non-peak times and leverage like that demand to, to create something better for the guests? And the last thing is by dealing with no shows appropriately, you can you wind up with this. Uh, thing where people that want to get in the restaurant can, and the people that are going to screw you over can't, uh, you know, the people that make two or three reservations on a Tuesday and then decide where to go last minute on a Friday. So God, people really do that. That's absolutely. horrible. Yeah. And so the thing oh. is that most restaurants treat every one of their guests like they're a deadbeat when really it's only 15 to 20%. So the, <laughs> the stuff that we have allows you basically to keep your book open for the people that are committed to showing up and then weed out the deadbeats. So it's, it's an anti-deadbeat software. Fitz, if people <laughs> want to find you on Twitter, where can they do that? I am on Twitter at the real Fitz. Very good. Uh, this is the part of the show where I usually talk to Brad about the Patreon. Uh, but uh, I'm just going to talk about it a little bit myself. We have at, at great uh, after an extended conversation, we've added one more new channel to the Patreon, to the Discord, which you can get if you subscribe at the $2 a month level. Uh, and it is called Code, Code, Code. It's because the NAS channel was getting clogged up with people talking about Linux programming. So um, so that's there. We've got uh, the food channel has been popping off. I talked about my maker, the project that I, uh, my daughter and I made for Mother's Day uh, tomorrow. Uh, yesterday, I, I made, we made it over the last week, but it's been we've been talking about it in the Maker Channel. It's an incredible resource. Somebody this morning came to me with a Mister question. Do you know what the Mister is, Fitz? You'll like this. I do not. It's a FPGA based emulation device that emulates everything, probably up to the PlayStation era. Not the PlayStation era is not there yet. What? But it it's, it uses FPGAs to physically mimic, you know, actually mimic the circuitry in SNES's, Genesis's, uh, Turbo Graphics, uh, Capcom, uh, the C- CFS uh, arcade boards, wow. some old arcade boards, stuff like that. So you can actually play, you know, as as my favorite example is that the Genesis shipped with different audio chips in different regions and different versions of the hardware. So you can actually get the Genesis audio chip that you grew up with. Um, and have, have the bleeps and bloops sound exactly like you want. Uh, I love it. Um, so yeah, he, he messaged me with a Mr. Question. I was like, I don't know the answer to this cause I don't have mine yet, but, uh, you can hit the discord and someone there will have the answer. And he's like, I was helped within like five minutes. So, uh, it's a wonderful community. It's it, like people are incredibly knowledgeable about a bunch of things. You, you can get access to them if you sign up for the Patreon and our first, um, subscriber exclusive episode went up last week as well, where Brad and I talked about the plan for this month, including talking to people like Fitz. So, uh, uh, you can find that at uh, t- uh, patreon.com slash 
tech pod. And, uh, you know, if you don't, if you don't want to sub sub to the Patreon, tell like three friends about the podcast. That's all we ask. That's we want you to tell your friends uh, about this thing that we make and appreciate everybody who's listening, everybody who's backing the show. As always, we want to thank our executive producer level patrons. Uh, these folks make the podcast possible every month, along with everybody on the Patreon. Uh, Andrew Cotton, David Allen, and Jacob Chapel. thank you so much for supporting the show. And we will be back uh, next week with another episode. Thanks for coming by, Fitz. This was awesome. It was my pleasure. Good to see you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.